Hello and welcome to this extra inning of The Ballpark, a podcast from the Phelan U.S. Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson, Managing Editor of the Phelan U.S. Center's blog on U.S. politics and policy, USEN. For this extra inning of The Ballpark, my colleague Mohid Malik and I spoke to Dr. Tesseli McKay, who is the National Science Foundation Postdoctoral Fellow in the Department of Sociology at Duke University. Dr. Tesseli McKay joined us to discuss her new book, Stolen Wealth, Hidden Power, The Case of Reparations for Mass Incarceration. Can you give us a short overview of your new book, Stolen Wealth, Hidden Power, The Case for Reparations for Mass Incarceration, and what inspired you to write it? Absolutely. Well, the title is a little bit of a spoiler, and intentionally so. I was inspired to write the book because I've just been so frustrated at what feels like the real intellectual dishonesty around conversations about reparations in the U.S. Um, the kinds of objections that are most commonly raised um, largely temporal ones, right? Like um, slavery was so long ago, people say a lot, because most conversations about reparations have focused on reparations for chattel slavery. Um, and it's been dismissed quite handily, not just in public opinion and public discourse, but also in courts and legislative debate on this idea that slavery was so long ago. And, and how could it possibly be legitimate to hold contemporary individuals or even contemporary governments to account for these atrocities that supposedly happened so long ago. And um, I think by focusing on temporality, we're able to bury the lead a little bit. And I wanted to push a more honest conversation about reparations. And so I thought, well, you know, Michelle Alexander's work very famously began this line of thinking about the sort of policy continuities that we see from the, the, the through line that leads from chattel slavery right up into mass incarceration in the U.S. And so in some sense, you know, mass captivity in the U.S. has shifted forms but it's not over. It's not far in the past. And what if we focused on its contemporary manifestation in a way that would at least allow us to move past this very superficial, I think, objection. And so what the book does essentially is to take the social scientific evidence we have. There's a, a really robust body of social scientific work on the collateral consequences of incarceration itself, of mass incarceration, of aggressive policing, um, all of which have been, you know, sort of a package deal in the U.S. Take the work we have, add some new work. I, I did um, a fair bit of primary qualitative analysis and and quite a lot of new quantitative analysis for the book, um, and see what the science tells us about the harms of not just mass incarceration, but mass incarceration as political violence, as we've seen it in the U.S. And so racially targeted mass incarceration. What's amazing is that the science really supports calculating a, a fairly rigorous and precise estimate. And so uh, the simplest thing that the book does is to put a number on the harms that have been done to Black communities from racially targeted mass incarceration. 
over and above whatever individuals convicted of criminalized acts have been sentenced to, right? Because there are folks out there who think that's fine and they should pay the price. But over and above that, um, what if communities suffered and the damages come to $7.16 trillion, which is immense. I mean, that's a macroeconomic. In the U.S. context, what is mass incarceration and what damage does it cause and to whom? That's such an important question because, you know, incarceration on its own is damaging. But in the U.S. context specifically, what we have implemented is very starkly racially targeted criminal legal system contact at really every stage, you know, from low level kinds of community based surveillance through policing, arrest, jailing and detention, conviction, incarceration, reentry, at, at all of those levels, right? The system is very heavily racially targeted. Um, and so part of what that means is that, you know, our incarceration rates, which are just staggering, period, in global perspective, are even more staggering if you look on a micro scale, the particular low income black urban communities that have been hyper-targeted. There, we don't see just mass incarceration, we see hyper-incarceration. And the kinds of damage that inflicts are really qualitatively and quantitatively different. What are reparations? And what examples can we look to as a guide as to how they might be put in place in the U.S.? Absolutely. You know, it's interesting. Reparations is incredibly controversial in the U.S., remains incredibly controversial. And um, the U.S. has paid reparations. Um, Japanese-American survivors of internment camps during World War II received individual distributions of reparations. Um, and I, uh, folks will quibble over the definition of reparations. And I think Sandy Darity, um, one of the economists here who's been studying this issue the longest, really insists on keeping a relatively narrow definition. So that is, there are many things that governments might do to recover from an atrocity like mass incarceration. Remembrance, public education, those things are important. But by reparations, what I mean um, is restitution payments to individuals, to families, to communities, that have been affected by mass incarceration. And absolutely, we need to do more than just restitution, but reparations fundamentally does mean making right the harm that was done with those who were directly affected. So in your book, you build on principles of transitional justice that have guided other nations in moving past eras of state violence. What can the U.S. learn from other countries in this area? Yes, I, this is such a great question because, you know, I think the U.S. continues to be plagued by this American exceptionalism, right? It's, I think it's underneath quite a few of our biggest policy mistakes. Um, and with regard to moving past the mass racial atrocity that has characterized the United States for our entire history since our country's founding, what we know from transitional justice is that three things are necessary, right? From Yugoslavia to Rwanda, Chile and Argentina, South Africa. I mean, all, all different contexts, 
and recovery from all different forms and kinds of mass atrocity. But what we've learned is that three things are needed. One, we have to build a shared understanding of the harm that has happened. And this is especially important, we know, in cases like the U.S., where um, a society has sustained a racial mass atrocity because in those situations, members of the dominant racial group we know have been systematically insulated even from knowledge of the harms that have been done. And their ignorance, if not corrected, will push against any sort of efforts at um, repair and redress. The second is remaking public institutions that were harnessed to the ends of the abusive uh, regime. And in this case, you know, it's everything from our institutions of law enforcement and public safety to our schools that have been host to a a school-to-prison pipeline um, and really remade what learning looks like for young people here. Um, And the third is material reparations to those affected. We know that this is critical. And I think, um, you know, there's a potent, potent example in the case of Germany, which has paid billions of dollars, I think uh, 80 billion euros maybe to date in reparations to Holocaust survivors and those affected by the Holocaust. And it continues to pay. I mean, just this maybe a month or so ago, it authorized a new set of payments to Holocaust survivors. So I think there's a powerful example elsewhere in the world if we're willing to look at it. And honestly, you know, the good news is it's not easy. The bad news is it's not easy. There are so many people in the U.S., particularly in this time of, I think, awakening interest in racial justice who are a little too quick to throw up their hands and say, gosh, we've, you know, we've had all these different eras of reform and all these different policy initiatives to bring racial injustice in the U.S. to an end. And, you know, the wealth gap persists, various forms of inequity persist. Here's the good news. They persist because we haven't done the work yet. So how can existing arguments against reparations in the U.S. context be overcome? Yes, it's a complicated question, and I think it's one that we really must face in the coming decades if we are really to retain a United States that is united in any sense of that word. Um, There are such immense and violent divisions. Um, And so, you know, I think that that the task of creating a shared understanding is urgent in our generation. As I said, you know, the ignorance of those of us who have been systematically protected from knowledge of the harms done through racially targeted mass incarceration will be a potent force against change, against recovery, against transitional justice, and certainly we know against reparations unless we directly address it. I mean, we need massive public education campaigns to address that. And I think also I'm becoming more and more aware that we need global support and global pressure. You know, speaking of learning from the international record, 
racial apartheid in South Africa didn't end because white South Africans simply said, you know what, we're in the wrong here. Let's make it right. Some did, absolutely. And, and there were certainly um, powerful allies and accomplices to the Black-led movement for justice in South Africa. But uh, it happened also largely and essentially through global pressure. And I'm really heartened that we're starting to see international pressure on the United States to address racial injustice in our criminal legal system. You know, the United Nations has issued a number of recent statements um, through the Human Rights Council, letting the U.S. know in no uncertain terms that these are gross abuses of human rights and of international treaties that the United States has signed related to human rights, and they must be brought to an end. I think that kind of international pressure will also really be essential. How do you think we can get to a point where reparations are discussed as a serious possibility by mainstream politicians in the U.S.? Yes. Well, you know, I, I think a lot about this question, of course. My hope is that those who are in office now will come to understand, and it's one of the points I try to make most clearly and strongly with the economic calculations and arguments that form the core of the book, is that unless we correct the material, the financial damages of past injustice, we almost might as well not bother having a legislature in session, passing laws in the present moment that we hope will shape the future of this country, whether we're on the right or the left, right? Our hope as, as a public is that the people we're electing now are the ones making the decisions um, that govern our day-to-day lives. And certainly the policymakers in office now on both sides of the political aisle are showing up to work every day under the idea that they're making a difference, that they're creating the policies that define life in America. But right now, that's not true. What defines life in America at the moment is the compounding interest of the damages done in the past. And we have neglected them now for so many hundreds of years that the effects of those steadily snowballing, compounding damages dwarf whatever we might do in contemporary policymaking. And I'd imagine that any politician who's bothering to put on that suit and tie in the morning would like to think that they and not our predecessors are the ones deciding what happens for this country. And if we want to do that, we have to make material repair for those past policy eras, a top priority. You know, there's this incredible, horrible thing um, in the U.S. that the U.S. racial wealth gap, I, I mean, I think one of the most potent, essential, bare bones markers of the status of racial justice or injustice in this country, it has changed hardly at all since the time of slavery, since the time when Black Americans were legally enslaved, 
We've gone through a civil war, a reconstruction era. We've gone through a civil rights era. We've gone through a Black Lives Matter era. And, you know, undeniably, each of those periods involved massive policy change, right? Lawmakers thought they were really getting in there and changing things. And yet at the end of the day, we see a wealth gap that has hardly changed since Black Americans were enslaved. And that tells us that whatever we're doing with contemporary policy is just playing around on the surface until we actually correct the material damage of our past. And that includes our immediate past. If we were to just correct the material damage of the last 40 or 50 years of mass incarceration, my estimates show that we would close 86% of the wealth gap that divides Black family households from the white Thank you so much for your answers. I find the focus in your work on one aspect of reparations to be an effective way in beginning to address some of the disparities Black Americans face. I do want to get your thoughts on that distinction between, on the one hand, the need for material repair, and, on the other, the focus on building a shared understanding of history and of policy. So, to what extent do you think a shared understanding is even possible? Because there's so much history that is contested and politicized, to the point where you have government officials who do not even want certain interpretations or analyses of history taught in school. How do we even go about addressing that very crucial prerequisite of gaining a shared understanding of American racism? Yes, I mean, that is, that is so the question of this moment. And, you know, it's a very strange time here. The last couple of years, obviously, I've seen this like burgeoning awareness among white Americans about racial injustice, a burgeoning desire among many, I think, at the left and at the center to sort of do something, right? Um, although I think a, a poor grasp to date of what those somethings might be or the scope of the somethings that might be adequate to the task. But at the same time, as you alluded to in your question, I mean, there is just this surfacing glacier of organized violent white supremacy that is making itself known. It has clearly been building strength for many years. And it's, as it has in many other eras where major policy reform is on the table, it is coming up above ground um, to create an atmosphere of threat and violence. You know, I live in the Southeastern United States, the Ku Klux Klan still marches in the street here every once in a while. Just to remind us all that they're there, it's not possible to forget. And so um, I certainly don't approach this work under any illusions about, you know, that, that there is a simple winning of hearts and minds. I think that there's something really crucial in what you said about prerequisite, because I think for too long, we have treated public awareness and understanding of an injustice, of mass atrocity as a prerequisite to really powerful reform. And yet we know, and, and certainly, you know, returning to the example of Germany's reparative efforts after the Holocaust, we know we can't wait for 
public support in cases where justice, and particularly in cases where the civil rights of a minority group are concerned. I mean, American history illustrates that beautifully, as does the history of, of many other countries, that those have to proceed in tandem. And so I think that's the critical piece. We need mass scale public education and social science, again, is a huge ally to us in understanding just how crucial that need is. Jessica Nelson um, and others following her have done this amazing work on something they call the Marley hypothesis, which is um, in very rigorous, well-designed experimental studies, they have shown that the differences in contemporary Black and white Americans' perceptions of um, present-day racism, the differences in their opinions regarding present-day policy initiatives to address racism, are predominantly explained by white Americans' factual ignorance of American history. So, so here, you know, it's interesting, right, because there are such different perceptions, increasingly a, a chasm between our perceptions of the country we live in and what our goals should be collectively. But I'll be honest, I see some of those differences in opinion as a simple artifact of differences in factual understanding. Um, and this is where the, the global transitional justice record is so helpful because we know that one of the products of racial mass atrocity and certainly long-standing racial mass atrocity like we've seen in the United States is social segregation. It's informational segregation. You know, we're not just living in echo chambers because of the internet, because of Twitter. They certainly do make it worse. But we're living in informational echo chambers because we're living in and with racism and we have been for so long. Um, and so... Public education is critical and efforts at justice, at remaking of abusive institutions, at material reparation must proceed simultaneous with and alongside public education. We certainly can't wait for everyone to be a big thumbs up before proceeding. I do think that the importance of public education cannot be underestimated because progress is continual work. How do you think a policy of reparations focused on addressing the effects of mass incarceration could intersect with other manifestations of inequality, whether that's housing discrimination or redlining or even chattel slavery? And what do you think of the efforts undertaken by California's reparation task force since it began in 2020? Absolutely. Yeah. So in terms of reparations more broadly, you know, I follow Darity and Mullen and, and many long-standing multi-decade reparations advocates and scholars in thinking that the end game here is to close the black-white wealth gap completely. Period. And you know, I, I talk about the black-white family wealth gap, but the the value of the entire black-white wealth gap is pretty immense. Estimates vary, but um it's pretty immense. It's a big job. And, you know, part of what I hoped to illustrate by doing this work 
specifically focus on mass incarceration is that even if we just made reparations for this singular, highly definable, incredibly well-documented injustice for which we've kept fantastic public records about who was affected, even if we just did that, we would be so far on our way toward that long game goal of closing the wealth gap entirely. Um, and you mentioned the example of housing. I mean, I think that's probably in the US the most talked about issue. I think people tend to think that that's where the documentation is best. Um, I think part of what's amazing about uh, trying to walk it out with mass incarceration is that in fact, we can do this for another um, aspect of racial injustice. And I really hope you know, parenthetically, that other folks working in the social sciences will begin to really think about reparative research as part of our charge, in part because if we're not doing that, what are we really doing as social scientists um, to be of value and of service in the time we live in? But yet, speaking of California's efforts, you know, for folks who don't know, they released this incredible 500-page report this summer, just a meticulous accounting of racial harms from the time of legal slavery to the present across multiple domains, physical and mental health, banking and economic well-being, the labor market, housing, they include the criminal legal system, which I was very excited to see, um, the environment um, and environmental injustice. And Part of what I think my work illustrates is that if we took the time to drill down far enough and precisely enough in any one of those domains, the scope of the damage that we would find and that we can rigorously substantiate is so immense that we've got to start leveling up our repair game. You know, these little, so much of what we've done for racial justice in this country is surface. And as social scientists, I think we can push to help our fellow humans level up our capacity to comprehend harm, you know, the scope and scale of death and destruction that we have frankly accustomed ourselves to in the United States because it has been going on for so long um, is staggering to comprehend and to think about having to make something right that is wrong on that proportion is inconvenient to say the least. But if we hope to have anything like a future in this country, you know, anything that is united in a United States, anything of a future that isn't just a regurgitation of our past, we have to get really good, not just at understanding the scale of the game we're playing, but how sharp our game is going to have to be, how sharp our policy game will need to be to make it right. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I guess um, the one thing I would add is that, you know, I, I just appreciate the chance to have this conversation with you guys about this work and, and about reparations. It's been a time in the U.S. of so many conversations about racial justice. And so many of those conversations are sort of racial justice light, right? Like people are so ready to talk about diversity and inclusion. They're so ready to talk about 
you know, identity politics and politics of representation. They're, you know, in some circles, so ready to talk about how I own my white privilege, but not ready to talk about abolishing the institutions that have quietly perpetuated racial injustice for decades and in some cases, centuries, not ready, certainly, to talk about material reparations, about giving back stolen wealth, giving back stolen land. And, you know, if we're not talking about that, we might as well sort of step back from the conversation for a moment. Dr. Tesselli McKay is the National Science Foundation Postdoctoral Fellow in the Department of Sociology at Duke University. And that's it for this extra inning of The Ballpark. Thanks so much to Dr. Cecily McKay for joining us in this episode. This extra inning was produced by Chris Gilson, Mohid Malik, and Anderson Tan. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rear Rangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. You can look them up at rangerswings.com. To listen to all our previous episodes, just enter LSE Ballpark into your search engine of choice. You'll find us. We're free to listen to, and unlike lots of other podcasts, we're ad-free. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Email us any feedback at uscenter at lse.ac.uk, or you can send us a tweet at lse underscore us. And please tell your friends about us. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the failing US Center or of the London School of Economics. Thanks so much for listening. 